Good morning. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 and verse number 16. A product of the erroneous teaching and preaching in our country is that we have a generation of Christians who have the mistaken notion that because they are Christians, that Jesus will protect them from any and all suffering. Therefore, when tragedy strikes, some of them feel that God has abandoned them. Others are devastated because they're taught to claim healing by faith. And when healing failed to come, they were told that it was because of their lack of faith. Others have been taught that it is unspiritual to grieve and shed tears. So when they come to church and they're asked, how are you doing? In order to appear spiritual, not unspiritual, they lie and they say, great, thanks for asking. Those kinds of misconceptions lead to personal devastation and to make these individuals a target for Satan. It's crucial, therefore, that Christians must learn to work through times of loss biblically because the sad truth is that we all are going to face them. In our text this morning, Jesus is seeking to prepare his disciples for the overwhelming sorrow that they're going to experience in the coming hours. They would watch in amazement and horror as he was arrested, mocked, beaten, and crucified. Their whole world, everything they believed, everything they had lived for, will come to a horrible and shocking end. Jesus wants to prepare their hearts so that they will not be crushed by what is headed their way. I want you to notice three things with me this morning. First of all, the prediction of sorrow. In verse number 16, Jesus says, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Since we are living on this side of the cross... We have little trouble understanding what Jesus meant. His disciples did not have that advantage. But surely this verse speaks of his death. For that very night, while he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas came with a band of temple soldiers and they arrested Jesus. He was hastily tried by Caiaphas and the Jewish Sanhedrin. And then he was put in a dungeon prison to await the breaking of day. By 9 a.m. that very next day, Jesus will be put on a cross between two thieves. And by 3 p.m., he will be dead and laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. This morning, I want to assure you that there are many reasons for sorrow. One of those reasons, one of those causes 
is disappointment. It's hard to really grasp just how devastated the disciples were by the series of events which culminated in the crucifixion of Jesus. Their whole world came crashing in. One glimpse into the depth of their sorrow is seen in the Emmaus disciples as it's recorded in Luke chapter 24 and verses 13 through 35. These disciples were on their way home from Jerusalem. The Lord appeared to them on the way and asked them why they were so discouraged. They told him about Jesus explaining how he had been tried and crucified by the leaders of the people. And then in Luke chapter 24 and verse 21, they uttered what must have been among the most heartbreaking lines in Scripture. They said, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They put all of their hope in Jesus, and now he is dead. And with him, their hope also had died. In the same way, when you have hoped and prayed and worked for something that you were sure were God's will, but it didn't happen, you may experience disappointment. And sorrow. Jesus' prediction is a negative prediction of sorrow followed by a positive promise. So Jesus says, A little while and you will see me. That refers to the fact that after three days, he will rise from the dead and he will again appear to his disciples. But those two words, and I'd invite you to look at them in verse 16, twice you see the small word, see. But they're not the same word. Jesus tells his disciples that in a little while they will not see, and this first see is the word for physical sight. They will not physically see him at that time. But a short time later, they will see him, and this is a a different word entirely, and it means to see with greater insight and clarity than ever before. One cause of sorrow is disappointment. Another cause of sorrow is confusion. In verse 17, the disciples reveal that they are confused. It says, then some of his disciples said among themselves... What is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me because I go to the Father. And they said, therefore, what is this that he says, a little while? We do not know what he is saying. They're puzzled. And they begin to ask one another, what does this saying of Jesus mean? They apparently didn't think it right to ask Jesus what it meant. Instead of asking Jesus to explain his words, the disciples began to discuss it among themselves, almost as though they were embarrassed to admit their ignorance. 
We can almost hear the disciples as they say, well, Peter, what do you think it means? Well, John, what do you think it means? And on some level, I believe they're afraid to ask Jesus because they knew the answer would be that he would no longer be with them at all. Some of the biggest questions in our lives are also concerning our relationship with Jesus. Questions like, is he real? Is he here with me now? If he's here with me now, why does he seem so distant? Will he leave me? Am I good enough for him? If he knows all about me, how can he still love me? These and other questions are so deep and so fearful that we may not even like to recognize that we struggle with them. We buried them because we're too afraid of the answers. Another cause of sorrow, not only disappointment and confusion, but the seeming triumph of evil. Jesus saw and understood what it was that they were going through. And so in verse 19, he says, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while that you will see me and again a little while and you will see me most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful this is a point that's so important that Jesus introduces his explanation with the words most assuredly or As the King James translates it, verily, verily, or truly, truly. We've seen that formula used over and over in the New Testament when Jesus is making a statement that his hearers are challenged to recognize both as true and important. Verse 20 says that the disciples will sorrow, but the world will rejoice. The smug and self-righteous Religious leaders are congratulating themselves on ridding themselves of this man who threatened their power. It seemed not to have bothered them at all that they were putting to death an innocent man. In our own day, as we witness the horrific evil of Muslim extremists who in the name of their religion condone the killing of innocent men, women, and children. We can feel the same sorrow over the apparent triumph of evil. That's a hard concept for us to accept that the world rejoices over the absence of Jesus. Think of it in this light. When I was a small boy... And I misbehave. I know you find that hard to believe, but I did. My mother sometimes said to me, when your dad gets home, I'm going to tell him what you, how you've been acting. How many of you have ever heard those words? The rest of you are not telling the truth. Well, we knew exactly what that meant. And in the same way, the world does not want Jesus to return because on some extent they know and believe that when he comes, there will be judgment. 
Not only the problem of sorrow, but secondly, the promise of joy. But your sorrow will be turned to joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 30 and verse 5, Weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation of the Christian faith. Along the same lines, William Barclay said, a gloomy Christian is a contradiction of terms. And nothing in all of religious history has done more harm than the church's connection with black clothing and long faces. It is one of the tragedies of the modern world that all too often Christians give no evidence of this joy that should characterize everything that we do. Christianity introduced something new into the religious world. A note of real and deep and abiding joy. Few things are as important as an understanding of Christianity and few things are as little noticed as the recognition of the thread of joy that runs through the New Testament. Jesus illustrated this truth by trying to make us see a connection with a very simple illustration from life, that of childbirth. He says that when a child is born, the mother suffers during the birth of that child. But when the newborn is placed in her arms, she forgets the pain and rejoices in her child. What Jesus promises is different than what we usually think. Most of us assume that our sorrow is going to be replaced by joy. But the promise of Jesus is that the very thing that caused us the sorrow is going to be the cause of joy. Dr. R.A. Torrey was one of the great Bible teachers of the past generation. He's a founder of the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And he gave a remarkable testimony concerning the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. Dr. and Mrs. Torrey went through a time of great, great heartache when their 12-year-old little daughter died. The funeral was held on a gloomy miserable, rainy day, dismal and melancholy. They stood around this forlorn little grave and they looked as the body of their little girl was put away. And as they turned away, Mrs. Torrey said, I'm so glad that Elizabeth is with the Lord and not in that box. But even knowing that, their hearts were broken. But Dr. Torrey said the next day as he was walking down the street that that misery came to him all over again. And he felt the loneliness and heartbreak that lay ahead. 
He was so burdened by this that he looked to the Lord for help and he wanted to share these words with you. He said, and just then, this fountain from the Holy Spirit that I had in my heart broke forth with such power as I think I have never experienced before and it was the most wonderful and joyful moment that I have ever known in my life. Oh, how wonderful is the joy of the Holy Spirit. An unspeakably glorious thing to have your joy not in things about you, not even in your most dearly loved friends, but to have within you a fountain ever springing up, always springing up 365 days in every year, springing up under all circumstances unto everlasting life. We not only have the promise of joy, but third and finally, we have the prescription for joy. Jesus describes in some detail what this joy will look like. First of all, he tells us this joy is permanent in verse 22. Therefore, you will now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice And your joy, no one will be able to take from you. The joy that Christ promises here is the joy that comes from what Christ did on our behalf at Calvary. No one can ever take away from you the absolute security that we have as believers. The finished work of the cross cannot be undone. It cannot be reversed. And the joy from it is permanently hours. This joy is not only permanent, this joy is powerful. Verse 23, that in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. The means of experiencing this joy that he's talking about is prayer. The key, of course, is to release this joy is found in the phrase, in my name, that is, in the name of Jesus. Does this mean that we're use the phrase, in the name of Jesus, as some sort of secret password that guarantees that we will receive what we ask for? No, of course not. To ask in anyone's name means to ask as though you were that person. That means that we are to ask for what Jesus would want, praying in line with the objectives of Jesus. Anything that is asked for that is in agreement with the will of God will be granted. The result of this kind of intimacy of prayer is joy, joy in its fullest measure. Joy is also a plentiful according to verse 24 now until you have asked nothing in my name ask and you receive that your joy may be full every christian fits into one of three categories in terms of their joy those who have lost their joy those who are living in partial joy and those who are living in full joy We must understand that our joy can be diminished. 
perhaps even lost for a period of time. David prayed in Psalm 51 verse 12, because of unrepented sin in his life, he prayed that his joy would be restored. Because of that unrepented sin, he had been robbed of the joy in his life. And so he prayed, restore to me, not my salvation, restore to me the joy of my salvation. His sin has robbed him of joy for a period, but the graciousness of God, he found his joy and it was recoverable. We can have joy. In fact, it is the Lord's intent that we have joy. Now, he knew that the cross was looming ahead. In a matter of hours, he knew that he was going to die as payment for man's sin. And yet his driving concern was not about what he was facing, but rather for the joy of his disciples. And the full joy is found in broken fellowship with Father. Sin breaks our fellowship and our communion. But confession and constant communication with the Father through prayer is the pipeline of joy being fulfilled. Jesus is not saying that when our prayers are answered, we will have joy. But that the prayer itself will produce joy. The final words of chapter 16 resound with the assurance to those who have sorrowful hearts. Verse 33 says, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. When we think of the suffering and sorrow of this world, it can overwhelm us. But Jesus says, he has spoken to them so that in me you may have peace. Now, he's spoken of that peace before in John chapter 14 and verse 27. And now he concludes with that thought. Peace, as the Hebrews understood it, is not the absence of war like we think of it. Peace is not the absence of anything, but rather the presence of God's rich and full blessing. It is the positive blessings of God given to us in the middle of the storms of life that is peace. But when the Lord says, I have overcome the world, the word our Lord uses is perfect tense. It means the victory is abiding and lasting. No situation we face can reverse the conquering power of Christ. Let's pray. Father, so often we, I fear, are in that middle category with our joy that we operate at best in partial joy. Some even with a complete lack of joy in their lives. And it is true that this world 
can rob us of our joy if we allow it. Help us to rekindle our joy. May we pray as David prayer, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. There's nothing that this world can do to take away that which Jesus Christ has already done for me on the cross of Calvary. Father, I pray that you'd help us to live in that joy today. There may be someone here, Lord, that uh, is suffering. They've been trying to do it on their own. They've been trying for a long time, and they've been defeated and disappointed and discouraged and confused. I pray that you'd help them this morning. If they have never accepted Jesus as their personal Savior, then you'd help them to understand that they can't do it on their own. There's no way that they can earn their way into heaven. There's no way that they can straighten themselves out enough so that they can uh, get heaven. But only by surrendering themselves, repenting of their sins, and accepting what Jesus has done on the cross can they be saved. Help them to know that they can do that right now, right here. For those who are in this place who may be suffering because their joy has been diminished or their joy has been taken from them for a while. And Lord, help them as they seek to have their joy restored and that we might serve you anew. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?